It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, our guest is CEO Aaron Cadell. Aaron is the 26-year-old behind Brand Darling, Mr. Holmes Bakehouse. What started as a dream while renting out a closet in San Francisco in 2011 has grown into an international vehicle for food culture. Aaron moved to San Francisco in his teens due to driving restrictions placed on him shortly after a brain tumor diagnosis. He credits his success to an internal drive built from avoiding that reality. Aaron Cadell, welcome into the corner office. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Brent. That's <laughs> great to have you here. Well, you've got a very interesting story as we were talking a little bit before the podcast. And what I'd like to do is just kind of start with your early years, because it sounds like that's might have really been setting the stage, obviously, for where you've gone to today. So tell us a little bit about that. Did you grow up in the Bay Area and then move back? Is that kind of your story? No, I actually uh, born and raised in Southern California, about maybe an hour and a half outside of Los Angeles um, and uh, kind of a smaller town. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't think I had too much of a vision for what I wanted to do, uh, with life, but, uh, it was, it, uh, changed quite quickly from month to month, uh, with some, I guess, lots of fleeting ambitions. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, what were those early years like? Were you kind of an entrepreneur from the word go, you know, have the paperwork, do the sales at Christmas time or, or what was kind of the things that you got involved with as a kid? Yeah. Uh, well, I loved music. Um, you know, I think ah. that, uh, there was, there was points when I, you know, looking back, I think that, uh, folks love to draw commonalities between like CEOs and entrepreneurs and things like that. And a lot of times I don't buy it, but, uh, you know, I think <laughs> in, in, in my case, if I were to point to one of those things, it was, uh, definitely buying large quantities of, uh, candy from, uh, Costco <laughs> and selling it to kids at school. Uh, as early as sixth grade, but uh, yeah, something like that. I love it. Did you repackage it or was it just kind of a put it in a brown paper bag and, you know, twice the price? Yeah, no, it's uh, it was it was pretty much just buying the buying the quantity in bulk and I'd be able to uh, <laughs> pretty much uh, double or triple my triple my uh, price on it. <laughs> That's awesome. And was that kind of for special um, activities that you use the money for? You mentioned music. Was that one of your hobbies or, you know, what did you typically do with the money you earned at that age? Yeah, there was. That's a great question. I, I, um, I more or less like. I think my my mother still to this day. Uh, my wife as well. They both uh, uh, quick to point out the fact that uh, my my interests are are quickly changing uh, from uh, month to month. Uh, so at the time, it was everything <laughs> from uh, purchasing books on how to. Uh, I don't know. 
chess theory to learning how to sew. Um, you know, I would just purchase all of the equipment that I would need, and within two months, I was uh, I became, I guess, uh, the level of proficiency that you know wasn't didn't mean I was good at it, but I became bored at it, and so uh, I became bored with the subject, and I would move on to the next. <laughs> and were those hobbies, or were they things then again that you would turn around and sell? Uh, no, I think mo- pretty much all of them were just hobbies. Um, like I would yeah. buy like climbing equipment and, uh, go out climbing and stuff with music, you know, I'd saved up and purchase a guitar. Um, and, uh, definitely, definitely the food industries like always piqued my interest. Uh, in high school, my buddy Brad and I, uh, and, uh, you know, he's the best man in my wedding, still, still my best friend to this day, but yeah. you know, we would, uh, pretty much, you know, whatever we didn't go to, uh, paying for our car insurance and our cell phone bill, we would, you know, pretty much drive out to Los Angeles on uh, on Friday night and uh, <laughs> go to Michelin star restaurants and uh, use our money uh, awfully. So, uh, but we just <laughs> loved the experience. We'd go out and get wine as you know, seventeen year old kids and uh, sure. you know, full meal. Did you go? Did you grow up in the San Fernando Valley, or were you outside uh, LA city limits? Yeah, outside of uh, LA City Limits, uh, Redlands, it's a uh, golden town okay. in uh, the Inland Empire. Yeah, yeah, I grew up down in San Diego, so very familiar with that, yeah, you know, yeah, part absolutely. of the country and got a fun. So what about your studies? Were you a good student, uh, you know, top of the class, middle of the road, or ditched as often as you could? It depends on the year that you're asking, um, <laughs> I think. Until... Let's, go, let's go back to junior high and, and elementary <laughs> yeah. school. How'd you start out? <laughs> yeah, I think I, I took school, you know, pretty seriously, uh, all probably through 10th grade, um, you know, and, uh, and, you know, I think a lot of things changed when uh, I got my driver's license, uh, you know, like I v- vividly remember driving to school probably like three days after I was got my driver's license and, uh, and I just questioned myself. I was like, I can go anywhere that I want right now. And I'm driving towards <laughs> driving school. To school. Yeah. So I actually like took a U-turn and I drove away from school and didn't go to school that day. Uh, so that was that was probably the the arc of uh, the uh, seriousness that I took education probably was up <laughs> until that point. So you mentioned music. What were some of your other uh, outside hobbies? Um, you know, I was... I was super into theology, uh, philosophy, and political theory. Um, wow. I, I actually, that was my- In my, high school. Yeah, yeah, in high school. Um, and uh, I think I, so I got, I ended up getting into a theology program as my first year in college, um, you know, but my, my, the rest of my time was spent reading Nietzsche, uh, you know, lots of guys like Thomas Hobbes and, uh, you know, the Federalist Papers going back to Rousseau and uh, lots of political theory. Yeah, terrific. <clears throat> I just had the privilege of seeing Hamilton for the second time. And, you know, the Federalist Papers, of course, uh, you know, starred brightly with regards to how, you know, the uh, Constitution was won. You know, I mean, Hamilton was an amazing man, but the fact is that he wrote and wrote and wrote like no one's business. But those Federalist Papers, which were all written anonymously, which uh, I had to kind of go back and scratch my brain and say, yeah, I knew that, but uh, didn't realize he was the author behind it. So, uh, a lot of political theory then was that kind of always of interest to you as well outside the the classroom yeah yeah i think so um you know i it kind of started from philosophy uh you know reading guys like bentham and uh, uh john stuart mill and like that you know and nietzsche as well uh like but uh yeah a lot of gentlemen who ended up uh making a sizable impact i think on the way that we look at how we organize uh human behavior like through like society and politics 
And it's interesting that you mentioned theology because you don't normally always think about, you know, political discipline being aligned with that, you know, separation of church and state and all that. So was that, you know, something that you pursued just because of that level of separation over the years and decades is, or, or was it just kind of a, a dual interest um, in those two areas? Yeah, I would say a dual interest. I, I maybe maybe there is like a a, a number of ways that uh, they've interacted in my head as far as my interest in them. Um, you know, of course, but uh, I, I I don't know. I I mean I I still I still consider myself a religious individual. Um, you know, it's a, a a piece that I was pretty excited about studying, and uh, but in general, I would just kind of I guess I would I, I I've done this in the past, but I, I kind of self-identify myself as more of an engineer than anything. Um, and part of that kind of mindset is, uh, just, I, I really enjoy the process of learning. Um, and, uh, and if there's an intricate system, uh, that can be understood, then I, I think that it's, it's fascinating for, for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. Cool. Any work during your high school years, you know, any part-time stuff that you did to pay the bills, put gas in the car, yeah. take those, fund those U-turns. <laughs> yeah, no. So there's uh, my first job was working at, um, it was a, called the America's first twin kitchen was, uh, and it's basically burgers and Mexican food. Um, and that was uh, ah. Baker's Burgers. And uh, I, to this day, it's still probably my favorite fast food place. Um, and uh, it's still around. Yes, no, it totally is. It's still around. I'm a young wow. guy, so most most things that were around <laughs> while I was in high school are still around. I just have never heard of it. Is it a California or a, a Redlands phenomena? Yeah, I mean, it came up at the same time as Del Taco, McDonald's. Yeah. You know, like all those guys are kind of in the same network, and right. uh, you know this this one just ended up staying like a local phenomenon. Yeah, they all kind of came from the same area too. I think McDonald's yeah. brothers were in California, weren't they? So yep, Inland Empire, exactly. maybe a little further north. Yeah, totally. awesome. So, so those were, you know, kind of your self-funding years, uh, leading up to college and, and you'd mentioned, you know, you studied theology and, and went on to college. Where, where did you go to college and what were some of the ideas or the, the, uh, motivations around, uh, the decisions for that you made to go to college? Yeah. So, uh, you know, i I was reading, uh, lots, I was skipping a lot of school and reading a lot of books, um, which yeah, is kind of yeah. an interesting combination. Um, but, right. uh, kind of that you know, youthful and a little bit immature, rebellious nature. Uh, so the thing that I th- think that I still uh, have not been able to shake, um, but I acknowledge <laughs> it. So I think that makes it a little bit better, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> but it's that mixed with uh, just like a very uh, thorough interest in uh, studying. Um, and so that, mm. that, that piece really just meant that uh, I was ditching school. I think my senior year, I ended up missing over 50 classes Um and that, uh, that not 50 days, but 50 classes. And yeah, what yeah. that, that ended up translating to, uh, just me going straight to the coffee shop and, uh, just opening a number of books. So that's where a lot of my, a lot of my time and my money went to and was, uh, was that exactly. And so, uh, by the time that I got towards the, uh, towards the end of my senior year, um, I was, I ended up getting, I, I guess I applied to a theology program uh, at a, a Christian university in uh, the United States, I guess in California, called CBU, and uh, it just—it was a full ride. Uh, they paid for everything uh, wow. to kind of go through this program, um, and then by the end of the first year, uh, it definitely was not for me. Um, and so that's uh, that's something that I I quickly exited from, uh, and uh, you know more or less tried to make a move into engineering. Um, and so. Yeah, that's that's more or less. I, I at that point I kind of pulled back. I was working full time, um, and so I went to uh, 
I went to community college. I think that was kind of the peak of the point where I was in, uh, I guess, interested in political theory. Um, and uh, then I kind of got into the Cal State system. Um, I switched my major over to Arabic, and uh, this is where stuff got interesting. So wow, I was wow. the reason I was studying <laughs> Arabic, and like I swear, everyone thinks this is a joke, but it was not. And this is really how idealistic I think that I am. Is uh, I, you know, I. It was probably within weeks of watching the Jason Bourne series, like back to back. Sure, and I was yeah. like, "This is this is amazing!" Like, <laughs> like <laughs> I want to be a spy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I found a program that if I like go through it, and I'm and I'm at the top of my class, and like I I tend to think of myself as like pretty good at school um, it, when I attend, right? And uh, <laughs> I, I I pretty much uh, I was like, I can go to the top of this class, and every single I, I guess I think it was. Uh, 80% of the kids that went through this program ended up getting, getting drafted by special forces, the CIA, yeah. the FBI. And of course, at this time, it was like super hot, like for individuals who were able to be proficient in Arabic. So, yeah. uh, you know what? Yeah. I, I went for it. And it was, I think I was three weeks in. And that's when everything kind of crashed down. Yeah. Well, I want to get to that in a minute, but I want to get a little bit of a deeper background. So, Mom and dad, obviously, uh, you know, had an influence on you. What, what did they do and, you know, what their careers and how, how, you know, family life, brothers and sisters. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. We've, uh, my, my mother, bless her heart, is a stay-at-home mom. Um, right. And like that, it, it was impactful to the company. I mean, to the, to the family in, right. in so many ways to make that decision, both from a financial perspective and uh, also uh, really just from uh, like, kind of growing up uh, as uh, somebody who was able to have uh, kind of a full-time parent that uh, was kind of at home. Uh, none, was, was, no mom doubt. A, was mom a grad? Was she a college grad? No, neither of my parents went through uh, college. Um, and um, yeah, so she she uh, spent, I guess, was full-time raising my sister and I. Uh, my half-brother, he is uh, he was already out of the house by that point. And so, um, you know, it was just kind of her, my, my sister and I, and uh, more or less like I... I have no doubt that, uh, you know, kind of part of the confidence like that is instilled within kids undoubtedly like comes from like the support of their parents. And it doesn't always have to look like this, but I think that that's as I've like actually grown up, it's been the piece that I think that I've appreciated more than anything like has been that. Uh, and then with my my father, he is, uh, he's been in construction his entire life. Um, just, yeah, exactly. And uh, like now he's kind of working uh, like in wastewater management, uh, for the city of San Bernardino. Um, you know, but, uh, this is, he's really just one of those salt of the earth type of individuals. Like, uh, absolutely. Like I would say that, uh, the person that I would, uh, refer to, yeah, for probably for the rest of life, as far as like de the definition of a, a great work ethic, as well as, uh, just the, uh, pinnacle of what it means to be a good human. And, and sis is a year two younger, older. Uh, yeah, two years older. And, she is, um, yeah, she, right now she's wrapping up her master's in speech pathology and like her, pretty much her entire purpose in life is to help people. So I think, I don't know, for whatever reason, like they, my parents did a, did a pretty great job of just like fostering, a, I think a good, uh, yeah, just did a great job. Of well, they must have instilled, yeah, an interest in education and, you know, you're obviously deep, you know, book reading and so forth and, you know, yet not being college grads themselves. It, did it come from them? Were they encouraging to that? Or was it, you know, more of a kind of a, <laughs> a DNA issue that you might've come across or, or, you know, did they really foster learning and, and education, bettering yourself, I guess, so to speak? That's a good question. I don't, I don't know if I, 
can truthfully answer that one way or another. Um, but you know, I, I can say like, you know, I did boy Scouts for a few years when I was a kid. Right. I just, I vividly remember my dad just being this perfectionist. Right. And like, we would be building, <laughs> like we'd be building these like, you know, carts to roll down a hill with, like with all the, the rest of the team and things like that. And he, you know, before you know it, he's just like, he's up until like 1 a.m., uh, perfecting this like cart with me, like in the garage, right. you know, like teaching right. me how to like do it exactly right. Um, you know, and so, uh, as far as education though, you know, like he definitely is more of a self learner. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I think that in general, there's a curiosity that, uh, is in, is in the family, but not necessarily in a, a prioritization of, uh, education per se. It's interesting that you say curiosity and, you know, Aaron, when we were talking before I was telling you about, you know, we've done enough of these where there's been some common threads, right. Among some successful, you know, CEOs, the successful CEOs we've been speaking to and, and curiosity is something that's mentioned very often. How did that play out for you? I mean, did you find that even as a kid, um, is that what kind of spurred on your interest in the reading that you did and, you know, the, the U-turns as well as the, uh, the entrepreneurial activities of going to Costco and getting the bag of candy, you know, what, how did it play out for you? And what are your kind of your earliest memories of what curiosity meant in your life? That's a great question. Um, I would say in general, I mean, without, before getting into any specifics, it was definitely like a, the overarching theme here. I, I think curiosity is a good way to describe it. I think a better way to describe it perhaps is just like, I just needed to break the rules. Um, mm. <laughs> it's, it was like a, a need in me to like, when I saw something that didn't seem to work correctly, uh, for whatever reason, or maybe I was just hyper, like judgmental about like the way that the world, like, you know, really spun, um, or maybe it was just pure curiosity, but it's like, I, I think that it, it just caused me to get head, like just knee deep into problem solving. Um, and to this day, I would say that the most fulfilling thing uh, it doesn't have anything to do necessarily with uh, the products that we make, though I, I take so much pride in them and I love them. Uh, it doesn't take, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, the customer experience that's occurring right there. It's like, it's actually every single problem that we come across as a business that we have to solve. It's the problem that I get stuck in front of a whiteboard until 3 a.m. in the morning. I forget to sleep. I, I realize I haven't eaten anything all day. And like, I'm just so in, like in, I think I, I'm just enthralled with the idea Engaged. of him, like yeah. solving a problem. Yeah. 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 Awesome. And, and it sounds like dad was a little bit that way too. I mean, staying up yeah, until late at, late at night, getting that trained in. Yeah. So a little bit of nurturing there. Yeah. Cool. Um, and so, uh, jobs, you obviously worked during college. Uh, again, was it more kind of part-time things prior to, uh, you know, the big change or, or, you know, any, any work there that was related to the food industry, for example, where you ended up? Yeah, I got super into coffee. Um, so, you know, after my job at Baker's, um, you know, I, uh, I, I just took a job at a coffee shop and, you know, as I was able to make more money, you know, just be being able to get, make tips and, uh, right. sure. you know, that, uh, that more or less was something that I found could be codified as well, which is exciting. Um, everything right. from at the time is actually the, the cinnamon, challenge i don't know if you remember that but essentially you like the challenge is like is it possible for a human being to like swallow a spoonful of cinnamon and so like on top of great customer service of course like i wanted to make sure i connect with all my you know like all of our customers but uh i would tell them that you know essentially like look if i uh if i can do the cinnamon challenge 
you know, then you're going to put $20 in the chip jar. If not, I'm going to buy, I'm going to personally buy your drink. I get people doing oh, it every great. day. That's yeah, great. which is great. So that was a, that was, that was a, a lovely move. And I think I, I, the, the love that I've had for food, um, you know, that I would make at home and things like that, it kind of, kind of got transferred and channeled into uh, produce, like making coffee. Um, and uh, I, at that point, you know, I started just to get competitive with it um, and uh, kind of going to competitions and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Good fun. Good fun. So a little money on the side, but also it sounds like they were, they were challenging things that kind of, you know, got other people challenged and excited, you know, was there, you know, what else was going on there, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Was it kind of, uh, not just focused on, you know, financing your, you know, your, your vices, the other things you pursued, or, or was it, you know, was there, was there an engagement factor? Was there something about those types of challenges that you liked from kind of an intrinsic standpoint? Yeah, I would, I would say, I think it would be from an intrinsic standpoint. Yeah. Um, I wasn't using anything as a goal to something else at that point in yeah, time. Right. Um, it really was just an enjoyment of mastering something. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and ultimately whether that was uh, studying thoroughly, uh, you know, the political, I mean, the political theory, if it was like getting into some, you know, philosophical uh, you know, train of thought, or if it was right. just like becoming really good at coffee or something super stupid, like I'm going to like <laughs> do the cinnamon challenge and I'm going to get right, paid right. for it somehow, you know, like <laughs> I think that that was the, it, I think it was just problem solving that I enjoyed. That's awesome. And, uh, you mentioned the Cal state system, uh, living at home during that period of time then, or did you actually have some on-campus experience during those years? Oh no. I, um, I, I, I moved out when I was 17. Um, okay. And, uh, and that wasn't because of friction in the house. I just like, I just been You're ready. very, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was, I, I, I think I took a lot of pride from very early on that like, look, my parents aren't going to pay for anything. I'm not going to live at the house and things like that. So yeah, um, yeah. yeah, I was living in, um, I was living in Riverside, you know, going to school in San sure. Bernardino and then working yeah. in Redlands. Right. Well, let's get to, uh, you know, kind of that uh, life-changing event. Um, tell us a little bit about the period leading up to that, you know, were there some symptoms that, you know, you kind of began to experience and kind of were, you know, sometimes as, as people are confounded by what might've been going on with you, tell us a little bit about those times, right, at, right up leading to your diagnosis. So it's really, everything started with, um, when I was playing with my band at a talent show for my high school and, um, and I was playing guitar and vocals and I think we were doing a pretty good job and, you know, I'm just super nervous, like got tons of nerves and, um, you know, we start, we, you know, we get started with one of our songs and all of a sudden, like my, my hand just stops working. Like it starts clinching up. And, uh, and at the time, you know, like I'm just frustrated more than anything. I'm not like scared or anything. I'm just like, I have to play this song. And so like my bandmates are like looking over at me and I'm just like, I don't know what's going on. I'm just like, pointing at my like arm. And so I dropped my pick and like, you know, it's just uh, kind of just frustrating. And so um, anyway, that, uh, that ended up leading to. And how long did that last? Was that just like a five minute, you know, e event or had it gone no, on for much, a long time? Yeah. Much shorter, actually. It was, yeah, uh, it would minutes. go on for probably, no, it was, it would probably last for about like 10 to 15 seconds. Wow. Right? Real quick. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so they, those were just very small things and I didn't think anything of it. So I didn't go to the doctor or anything. Um, and, uh, then 
uh, at a later point in life, I was uh, in a different band. Uh, sorry, by a later point in life, I mean like probably like a year later. So like 11th grade maybe. And, um, and I was, uh, you know, playing a show that was, you know, in a few cities over. And, um, you know, I get up on stage and we just were starting our second song. And the thing starts happening to my hand again. And I'm just like, oh, great. And then before you know it, like, I just feel electrocution start going through my entire body, right? And so my arm, it just starts flailing and kind of going out of control. I, I'm At this point, I'm actually embarrassed. And I just feel my upper body give out. I hit the floor. And then I wake up. And uh, I don't so know how much. It was, a, it was a, full, it was a full seizure. Yeah, it was a full seizure. So blacking out um, and, you know. I opened and my this eyes. Is, this is still high school or are we in college now? No, this is high school. This still is the first school. time that I had, uh, had a seizure, yeah. um, like a full on seizure. And so, yeah, they, uh, you know, the, when I wake up, the paramedics are in front of my face and they're asking me a series of questions, um, you know, including what year it is and all these questions that apparently I just answered all of them wrong. Um, but when I get up, I just, uh, you know, they lift me up and they take me out and, uh, you know, they wheel me out. And I uh, just remember there's just like all these like girls in corners oh, and like gosh. everybody just kind of like crying and stuff. And like, what did I just do? You yeah. know, like, what just happened? Um, and so they do so an it was, MRI. it was more kind of disbelief, not embarrassment. Right. Yeah. 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 I think it well, didn't it, a blackout. Yeah. Didn't know sure. what happened. Yeah. Got it. Okay. I mean, I knew that I felt this electrocution. I started moving involuntarily. So, right. right. Um, but uh, they did an MRI. They didn't find anything. And ultimately uh, they, they actually, they didn't not find anything they just they missed uh something mm. that, you know ultimately from today i think anybody would actually be able to spot the tumor uh yeah, but you yeah. know we uh ultimately just kind of uh the doctor calls a meeting with me and um just lets me know like look this is this is pretty normal you know like or ultimately this is something we're expecting you to grow out of and um you know give us some time and you know by the time you turn 18 you're probably not going to have any of this and i was like all right that sounds great so I took my face value and uh, just kept on moving on with life. And I would have these focal seizures, those little small ones with my hand that I was talking about mm. the first time. And they would just happen. Uh, they became became happening more frequently. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it's, that's kind of ultimately what led to me uh, post, um, post high school when I was in my uh, – in you know studying arabic at that point working yeah, at a right. coffee shop and uh, <laughs> Hoping living to join in the cia <laughs> right exactly <laughs> and uh i was at work uh, you know making uh making coffee yeah. and uh and we were we we're in the middle of a rush and um you know i was working with one other person and you know i enjoyed the rushes you know they were fun ex- right. exhilarating sure. a little bit of an adrenaline rush and yeah. uh yeah and you know uh 18 or 19 year old yeah i was nine i think i just turned 19, uh, 19 year old Aaron just, uh, you know, pretty much hit the floor and blacked out. And I wake up and, you know, my coworkers, uh, lap, you know, just like, and, uh, everybody's crying again. Right? Yeah. And so yeah. <laughs> it's just, and this time I actually know what happened. And, uh, at this, and I'm this also was like kind of the second, second largest seizure then. Cause you didn't right. have any. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. And so this time they pull me in and, uh, my doctor, uh, you know, uh, makes the decision that I've got to lose my license, my driver's license, um, uh, because of seizures, which isn't fun, especially for somebody who's 19 years between, old. Yeah. Yeah. And operating between three cities in Southern California. Sure. Working as well. Yeah. Going to school. But, uh, and then on top of that is I get a terminal diagnosis, uh, mm. which isn't fun either. And so he's like, he pretty much gives me, uh, you know, at best until 30 years old to live. 
um, you know, to try to avoid surgery as long as possible, as it's something that would paralyze the right side of my body, potentially leave my arm just uh, constantly restricted. So, so b- back up, Aaron. Did they do another MRI and then finally discover the yeah. tumor? So yes, they did. Okay. Another MRI. So, so after the second seizure, they obviously knew they missed something, right? So they went back and and found the tumor. Exactly. Got it. Got it. Wow. But inoperable. Well, it was, it's operable. It's just incredibly dangerous. And so uh, it, it's basically, it's the tumors located uh, right next to my primary motor cortex. And so they were like, look, if you can postpone having this surgery as long as possible, we would recommend it. Um, you know, they, they had another piece that, you know, especially had, uh, you know, frustrated me about that conversation was his description of my ability to speak. Um, and so I would, my brain would be functioning normal. Um, but the coordination between the muscles in my face are at high risk. And so I might not be able to actually speak, uh, at least for, uh, I could potentially go through therapy and see what could be recovered. Um, and, and that so, was a diagnosis for more of a gradual uh, degrading. Was that kind of what they had expected or was it something they felt that would happen quite soon? Because it's, it's obviously been several years, but. Right, right. No, it would be, it would be from the surgery is what they oh, were from saying. From the surgery. I'm sorry. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And so ultimately this was it. It was like, look, so you're dying and uh, you want to postpone this surgery as long as possible and you need surgery in order to extend the lifeline. Um, and so you're kind of put between a little bit, you're, you're kind of between second and third base. And, wow. Uh, wow. Definitely in a pickle. How, how did your faith come into action at that time, if it did? Um, you know, was there kind of a moment? Was there a pause? Was there... Um, going back to, you know, some of your beliefs in terms of, wow, God, you know, what's this about? Uh, was there a moment there? You know, I don't claim to understand at all how God interacts with the world. Uh, I think it's something that's quite confusing. Um, you know, even, even for this, I think those of strongest faith in whatever it is that you believe, there's, uh, there's a lot that I think is left up to wonder. Um, but there, one thing that I would say that, uh, Definitely at this time, um, that I, there was nothing that I would ascribe to being somebody else's fault, that the natural order more or less like this is the way that my cards have been dealt. dealt. Um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So I think that, uh, rather than, uh, any form of anger, uh, or any form of sadness or things like that, it was more or less like I have a series of decisions to make before I stop making decisions altogether. And, uh, what that means is like, uh, you know get on your feet and start building a game plan. So did you go forward with the surgery? No, I did not. Got it. Okay. At the and time. At the time. Right. So drugs were prescribed or how did they deal with, you know, the seizures or was there any, you know, short term? Um, yeah. yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I, I, I actually still take seizure medicine to this day, right. um, which uh, I'm, I don't necessarily need to, we'll get to that point, but yeah. you know, essentially I'm going to, not supposed to operate anything for the course of six months while I come down off of the medication. So right, I right. just haven't had the time. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I was given medication and, um, you know, rest, you know, removed my driver's license and, um, you know, more, more or less, uh, you know, trying to figure out, uh, where the next, pl- where's, where do I need to be in order for me to be, yeah. an op, you know, a functioning human being and, you know, get something done with life. Did you leave school then? Tell us about the path from that point forward. Oh, it was super quick. So, um, you know, I, after this 
diagnosis and such, um, you know, immediately I just wasn't going to school. I was like, all right, this is invaluable <laughs> entirely. <laughs> that was, that's kind of predictable, Aaron, you know, right. <laughs> it's on your history. I can see that U-turn the, coming. <laughs> exactly. The first thing to go was education. Uh, but I mean, like, you know, you, you've got it. It's important anymore. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it just didn't fit within the timeline that I, yeah, that I was right. kind of restricted to. Um, right. And so right. it would be completely meaningless for me to spend another three years inside of, uh, yeah. in, in an Arabic program, right. uh, you know, just to lead towards, you know, the end of, the end of my life. So any, re any regrets about that? No, not at all. Um, you know, there's been so much, um, you know, introspection that I think that my entire generation has been doing about the value of, uh, you know, secondary education as a whole. Right. Right. And, uh, definitely like those, those feelings for sure resonate with me. Um, and especially given the, the, uh, the, um, just the business that I'm currently in, which is blue collar work. Yeah. And I, I would actually, we should, I would love to talk about that stuff at some point today. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Great. So, so, um, let's, you know, mid, mid fast forward here, uh, you, you set a new path. What was that? And, you know, how did you take those steps from that point forward? Yeah. Um, well, rather than, you know, um, again, rather than kind of, uh, being at a point of despair or, you know, um, kind of, uh, imploding, you know, emotionally or something like that. I think that there's just something in my brain that just turned off that point in your brain where you're just like, Hey bro, like let's check these feelings out. Um, and, uh, that part just was not there, uh, more or less. Like I, I realized that, uh, I had a very limited quantity of time. I had very limited amount of time to like actually be conscious. And, uh, what that meant for me is I have a lot of shit to get done. <laughs> right. Right. So you got your bucket list together, literally, right? <laughs> Something like that. I didn't necessarily know what it meant, but, uh, you know, more or less, I went up to visit my brother in San Francisco. Uh, while I was there, there was, I was at a coffee shop and, uh, you know, just figuring out what the heck do I do like with the rest of my life. And, um, you know, I, I'm there enjoying myself and, uh, you know, this, the manager there, I, somebody that I knew, and, you know, I asked him about openings um, and he pretty much was, he just told me, he was like, well, I have an opening right now. Somebody didn't show up. So if you want the job, it's five days a week and you can take it as long as you can start today. <laughs> so I did. Um, wow. Uh, I, I started the job right there on the trip up to San Francisco, which was a week after I had got diagnosed. Um, wow. And, uh, but I had something else to work out, which is a place to live. And yeah. so I asked him if he had a place to live and he said, I I have a closet. And so I <laughs> literally moved into his closet. And uh, that's uh, really where I spent the first months in San Francisco uh, was um, just inside of a closet, going back and forth from work. And at that point, building a game plan for what the rest of my life would look like. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And again, um, it just sounded like you just kept moving forward, right? And that's kind of the best way in which to kind of deal with uh, tragedy and, and these types of things that impact you. Uh, did you feel at any point in time, you know, any helplessness or were you just too busy figuring out, look, I've got a limited amount of time and I'm just going to go do it and figure out oh, what that there's, is. There was nothing helpless about what was going on in my yeah. mind. Everything yeah. was, uh, this decision is either going, it's, is going to have a higher or lesser ROI than anything else that's on the <laughs> whiteboard. And I'm going to analyze which one is going to be the better decision. 
And in making the decision not to have the surgery, was that something that, you know, you involved your parents with? It doesn't sound like you're perhaps married at the time, but, you know, was that a, was that a tough choice to make? Um, no, no, I don't think so. No, it was, it was, it was pretty easy. Um, it, life doesn't, life just looked a lot different. Um, yeah. You mentioned time, you know, and like how, how you would, in you essentially approach these things that we do on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, a lot of people, I think when they go to work, for instance, you know, they see the week as a seven, as a seven day cycle, right? right? It's like this, what I'm doing today is going to just happen again a week from now. Um, For me, it, it immediately stopped being that like time stopped being cyclical and it ended up being, I am like more or less, there's a fuse that just got lit and I, I am right now, I have to sprint if I want to get accomplished something, which I just began defining while I was, while the fuse was going down the line. Well, truly living one day at a time, I guess. Was that a good way to describe it? You know, you kind of yeah. just said, I, I, I don't know how long that fuse is going to burn, but the fuse is lit. And, you know, frankly, sure. it's lit for all of us, but you just knew that you probably had a much shorter fuse on it. So right. you just got busy. Well, tell us about that. So, so you moved into the closet, and I know this is a special closet. We've talked about that yeah. before as well. Um, you know, how did this game plan play out? How did it develop? Well, I, you know, I, I was more, you know, I was working as a barista, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I at the it became very clear to me that you know like, this is not. Uh, I mean, it was never a point that I was analyzing it as something that would be a long term play. It was uh, you know I was uh, while I was in school and it was a trade that I was able to bring to San Francisco so that I could f- afford to live in a closet. And so you know <laughs> right, I right. Uh, more or less was like, how can I take this thing that I'm actually pretty good at and uh, turn it into a business? And so you know I went through. Um, I basically went up to Hate Street, you know, where the, the free love movement was in the 60s and 70s. Hate Ashbury, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, there was a failing chocolate shop, and um, they had a really nice espresso machine called a, uh, an FB80. Um, and, uh, you know, I saw that immediately, and the store was completely empty. I was like, I think this place is positioned wrong. And so I just spent every single day that I had uh, after work there just like on my computer. And uh, I began just drafting a business plan. So I didn't have the contact information for the owner and every or anything, but the entire staff they got to end up knowing me like over the course of like two weeks. And uh, you know, I I had never done this before, but I pretty much had put together somewhat of a pitch uh, that uh, I would be able to provide to the owner once I got a hold of him to let him know that I was going to take over his business and uh, basically reposition it as a coffee shop and, you know, retrain the staff, redo the interior and some other things with a pretty cheap budget. Um, Bold. And so, Bold. Yeah. Well, I think like when uh, you kind of have a death note, you don't really have a lot to lose. And so like, <laughs> I've either, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know whether I can attribute it to just being uh, like uh, overly, uh, confident or if it's just, uh, like that social pressures and social obligations in life, uh, you know, I think at that point, uh, just stopped being meaningful. And so it's kind of like a nothing to lose situation, but one thing led to another and, you know, I got in front of him, we spent about two hours together and we shook hands that same day. Um, and, uh, more or less, you know, I, uh, you know, we, (laughs) I, I came in there and, um, you know, it was super, it was very well received by the neighborhood and, uh, it ended up turning into two locations within six months. Um, and that, at that point, that's when I saw a very clear view into the pastry market. Yeah. So that first business, what was that called? That was Stanza. 
Oh, that was Stanza. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just um, pretty much a coffee shop type of yes. a location. And got it. Yeah, exactly. Got it. And, and that uh, evolved. Well, and while that was happening, I was consulting for other uh, coffee uh, programs, you know, in the city as well, uh, just to make uh, extra money. And so that was, uh, I ended up building a number of relationships through that as well. Awesome. And so um, tell us a little bit about some of those early leadership lessons, because obviously at that time you were taking on staff and beginning to work with them. Um, you know, what, what were you, what did you kind of learn what, what, you know, from your earlier years and what were you beginning to apply? Because you are now in a leadership position, right? And in, in taking these folks and, you know, in, influencing and managing and directing their lives, at least their work lives. Um, what were some of the key things that you learned during that period or applied during that period? Uh, the first is that nobody knows what they're doing. Um, <laughs> that's definitely the first. I uh, I was 20 years old and my business partner most definitely did not know that he was now in business with a 20-year-old kid. Um, yeah. So that was that was one piece. Um, and as I began, uh, you know, learning how to run a business, uh, this like as the the biggest thing that I think that I've come to attain as somebody who owns a business today is, is the ability to um, do project management. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the ability mm-hmm. to ship a product is far and away the most valuable asset that you can bring to the table. Um, and getting into an executive level role, whether it's like an early stage startup or going into a middle market company, uh, I can't really speak beyond those two things, but yeah, right. uh, in those positions is being able to uh, know what everyone needs to see in order to get not only an idea of what they're responsible for, but also a 10,000 foot view of what their mm. job means to the larger picture. Um, yeah. And uh, that, that piece became, it became very clear in lots of failed lessons as I'm dealing with uh, very young people who may, may or may not show up to work, who end up showing up to work with, you know, um, drunk or, you know, something like that. And, uh, <laughs> it's, it's the first violin seat, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> right. it's really a kind of a conductor's job, isn't it? Because you, it's like, it just, I would say just as any other industry, and I'm not going to say that they're all equally difficult or anything like that. Coffee shops, I would say like, it's uh, much easier than what I'm currently doing today. Uh, but nonetheless, like everything is a matter of putting in place like systems to be able to, uh, operate under. Um, mm. and like the, the quality of your systems will dictate the quality probably of your company. So would you say you're a process guy? Would that be a, a good description? In other words, you really think through what all those elements are, do them yourself, right. And kind of understand, you know, the, the, the approaches to it, and then really just help your people along figuring out how they play the part in the bigger process. Is, is that a description that you would agree to, or is it a little different? I would say that I'm learning how to do that every single day, but I think that I've become a lot better at it than when I first started. Excellent. And what do you look for in people? I mean, you know, you've, you've now about a hundred staff, what, what, what's your total staffing now with the uh, current initiative? Yeah, we are, we're, I would think we're approaching 70. Yeah. Um, but we are, uh, the, the thing that I would say, at least within my immediate directs, right? Like my, my, uh, office team, right? Is I value so much more the ability to learn how to solve a problem mm. uh, than actually the knowledge itself uh, to solve a problem. So if somebody has the experience in how to solve the exact problem I have, I think that you would be great as a consultant that I'll hire for probably you know three weeks, however long to how long it takes to solve a problem. Uh, but what I'm looking for is the ability to uh, to uh, attain the knowledge to solve a problem. 
Got it. And do you think curiosity comes into play there as we talked about earlier? Do you look for that in others? Yeah, I think curiosity plays a part. Um, I would say perhaps even more than that is, you know, I, my entire team, they know that more or less like the most important thing inside of this company and like um, working with this team is uh, taking direct pride in every deliverable mm. that comes from your desk. Um, and so, you know, like I've, I think the first day that uh, anyone on my uh, immediate team works, you know, like I go out for coffee with them, perhaps a drink. Um, and uh, the conversation more or less starts with talking about how I don't care whether or not that they're working 30 hours a week or they're working 60 hours a week. That really just means that they're sitting in a chair for 30 or 60 hours. Like if they're at their computer for 40 hours that week, that just means they're literally sitting at a chair typing on you know a keyboard. Um, the only thing that their success and that they're going to be measured by come the next performance review and whether they're going to be a right fit for the company is ultimately the quality of the deliverables that come from their desk. Um, and the difference between people, it's not their experience. Um, it actually, I don't think it even has to do with their raw intellect and things like that. It's uh, It really is a, uh, an amount of pride that they have uh, in uh, anything that they're going to be presenting to the company and the team. Uh, that we, I think that we're, everyone on my team has one main uh one main focus and that's like if they don't see that they've added value over the last week then they need to reanalyze what their work focuses are yeah well pride's important what what about the other p do you look for passion is that important when you recruit and look for people in your organization passion i think is i think passion's a little bit of a buzzword mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. i would say, i mean the pr pride in themselves is a little bit maybe like as i was talking about perhaps is a better descriptor for what i'm perhaps looking for um you know it's uh, something that we sh have like painted on the walls with our company values is uh, right. impress yourself um it's a it's a really important facet um i think that you can have passionate people under controlling command systems command and control systems right, um, right. and uh i think time has shown that that doesn't work um, um you know, it's, I think that what people need is uh, not a need to ultimately impress me or for the directs to, you know, uh, impress their supervisors. Uh, but ultimately, I think when they step into the job to have clear expectations of what it means to, to meet the expectations of the job and for them to feel the excitement and exhilaration of solving problems and presenting that to the rest of the team. And so recognition behind the work inside of this company is uh, actually, it, it's a huge component, I think, of what we've built. And if they don't have that pride of ownership, they're never going to have that other, <laughs> right? You know, that's, so. that's important. No. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about uh, Mr. Holmes. Now you've been in that capacity, is it three years now? How, how long has the operation been in its current uh, state? Yeah. Um, geez, I think it's been about four years. Four years now. now. Yeah. Got it. So, so tell us about the evolution. How did, how did you get from the closet right. <laughs> to the, uh, to the hate street coffee shop, uh, to Mr. Holmes? Right. Yeah, no, uh, we've, I had these coffee shops, um, you know, I quickly began to realize that the margins, uh, within the product, it, uh, you know, it wasn't, I think, I mean, at the time I was, you know, 20 or 21 years old, you know, making 70 grand a year. And to me, that was great. It was awesome, but I'm not here like for the money, right? Like I, I want to build something and I don't think the margins there supported the kind of growth patterns that I'd be interested in building. I built the systems that I needed for two stores, but what does 10 stores look like? Um, and, uh, and so 
you know, ultimately I wanted either more complex systems or I wanted way more money to be able to like more, way more capital to build a lot more stores. Um, and so with coffee, it's an overcrowded market. And what I saw very clearly is, as a coffee shop owner is the same thing that every other coffee shop owner sees inside of my industry, which is that we're all going for the same exact pastry providers, right? I mean, it's a simple equation, but you as the consumer, you just see better or worse pastries from coffee shop to coffee shop. What you don't understand is that we're all going after the same guys. Um, so we're getting on their waiting list in XYZ. And so after the process of getting on the wait list of the two companies that everybody in in San Francisco had wanted to be on, I decided that I was going to drop that list and I was going to build my own company. Um, and so, you know, ultimately I, you know, ended up over a lot of convincing. I convinced one of my baristas to who had some baking experience to come on board and start baking with me. And so we were waking up, you know, very early in the morning <laughs> at right, like 3 a.m. Right. Yeah, wake, you know, and uh, getting getting uh, a bunch of muffins and scones and like n- none of the pastries that we currently serve today. And we were getting them out to everywhere in, I guess, uh, to, to our two, I mean, to, to my two coffee shops at the time. Um, and w- bef- by the end of the first month, uh, we had maxed out our production, um, you know, with uh, not just our two, like uh, my coffee shops, but also a number of coffee shops throughout the city. And um, and so that's uh, that's kind of how the story began is pretty much uh, reaching our, the pinnacle of production out of the facility that we were in at the time to, you know, renting out um, within the first month. When did you kind of make that transition from saying, this feels like candy from Costco, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and I think I need to get out of the coffee business and get into the pastry yeah. business full time. No, I mean, it was definitely an organic move, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. like my fascination with food has been from such an early age. Um, right, I remember right. making like uh, sourdough bread at 13 years old, you wow. know, like just thoroughly enjoying like a lot of this, you know, the science and such behind like baking and, and everything. And so, right. uh, you know, like, and not even baking, but just, you know, cooking in general, the food industry. So this was an organic move that I thoroughly enjoyed. But on top of that, you know, before I ended up making the move into it, the way that I found out whether this business was viable or not is I, I went on to Google and I mm. just searched for random recipes and I costed out these recipes by, you know, checking out the food for less and trying to <laughs> see what all the ingredients cost. Sure. And I was like, Jesus, this is like, <laughs> this is a good eggs, margin. Flour and sugar. Yeah. <laughs> all and basic like, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I was so ignorant at the time, <laughs> uh, you know, but it was, it was great. Um, and so I ultimately was like, look, this is a further level of complexity and le- an entire new like realm of systemization that I would be able to ultimately accomplish. And I think a business that would be an, an like more or less like an endless uh, black hole of, uh, of problem solving. Wow. Terrific. Well, you know, it's been five, six years now, I guess, since the full diagnosis and, you know, the, um, the, the, the prognosis as well, right. With regards to what's going forward, how have you managed that over this time? You know, has it been something that, you know, the medication has kind of kept in check? Have you had seizures that have gone on? Did you make a decision about any additional, you know, surgery or, or, you know, how, how do you kind of face that day to day? Yeah, we are. uh, Okay. So in the operating agreement that I created, um, um, you know, for the LLC as it originally was established, I put in a clause in there and it pretty much was uh, stating that with the people that were throwing in some money to, you know, invest in us and such uh, that, you know, I 
was going to be able to retain my equity in the case of death, like once I had this surgery. Um, no, like that essentially I would be able to get transferred over about, I think it was like 30% of the equity would be able to like remain to my family. Yeah, so I just wanted right. to be able to give them something. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. There's just this strong desire to give them something. And so, um, you know, I, you know, more or less I had planned from pretty early on, like I was going to try to get this company launched and go into surgery because I've got to make it happen. The, mm. sur- the seizures were coming, becoming more and more frequent. I was having them, you know, I recall having them while I was at work, oh. a number of customers that now are looking at this business owner that's just like foaming out of the mouth and blacked oh out. And, you know, it's just, it wasn't, it wasn't wonderful. <laughs> Not conducive. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, and then on top of that, while I was riding my bike in the city, you know, it just, it became pretty messy. Mm. And uh, it was a point where I think I was starting to get scared. And so um, I got ready to schedule my surgery. Um, and uh, this, at this point, I, um, I, you know, I went through a great, fascinating doctor in Los Angeles. His name is Dr. Peichel. Um, I don't think I've ever actually told him, but I think he saved my life. And, uh, you know, he, he essentially performed a surgery uh, on my brain when, which I was, a, I was awake for about five hours of the surgery. Wow. Yeah. Which was, I was actually it, was remember so much. Or of it was more of a disablement of the tumor. How did it? Yeah, it was a removal. Removal. Got it. Okay. It took out, uh, it took out the tumor, um, and uh, they're just having me perform a number of motor functions as I was having the surgery. Um, my uh, my leg stopped working while it was happening, and so they started cutting around it. Um, so minimally, I know for sure because uh, I still remember them repeatedly asking me to move my leg, and me telling them I am. Oh, wow. uh, you know, wow. so going over that after surgery as well. But I had some some mild loss of function in my on the right side of my body um, for really just a few weeks after surgery. Uh, but you know, if if really he uh, hadn't done surgery in the way that he did. Uh, in keeping me awake, um, which I don't know how common it is now, but in 2014, uh, you know, like we were asking multiple doctors about this and, uh, you know, you ended up being the one that was able to do it Yeah, and told me about it. So, wow. Fantastic. Um, yeah. If it wasn't for that, the right side of my body would be trashed. Um, I would be a quadriplegic, no wow. doubt. Uh, wow. They would have cut that part of my body out. Um, cause that's so, where the brain was sitting or was sitting on the left side, I guess that controls your right. Right. Is that how it right, works? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, um, so, uh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, wow, I ended up getting out of surgery successful and removal. Fantastic. But it turns out that even though I wasn't dying, it's still really difficult for a 22 year old. Uh, I think it was 22 at the time yeah. uh, to raise the money that was needed for us to open our first retail shop. Um, and so as ambitious as I was, uh, and the amount of very amateur financial modeling that I became, you know, uh, you know, good enough at to present to people at the time they still weren't giving you know throwing their money at me so <laughs> right i started building our first retail space and i uh came up about a hundred thousand dollars short um mm. and that was a bummer because i'm still operating under like with the kind of lifestyle that i'm dying and so i make decisions and uh, ultimately uh you know i bear the consequences of them later um, so part of that was signing a lease before I actually had all the money to build out the space. Um, right, right. So we, we were able to, you know, build the, you know, get the plumbing done, the electrical upgrade and things like that, but I didn't have enough money to buy the actual equipment. And so, um, more or less, you know, I, uh, I, well, I, I actually didn't, um, <laughs> okay. I think that I just, I got lucky, but, uh, 
I knew that I needed a hundred thousand dollars and I wasn't going to be able to get it by going to the bank. I wasn't going to be yeah. able to get it. You know, like I, my family's not of wealth. Um, and I think that I had tapped into pretty much every angel investor who would listen to a 22 <laughs> year old, tell them, tell them why they should invest in a bakery. And, uh, so I, um, I, yeah, I pretty much, uh, just applied. I planned it out. I basically listed out all of the credit cards that were offering 0% interest (laughs) (laughs) for a course of 12 to 18 months. Um, And I knew that I had to apply for them at the exact same time. So if I didn't apply for them altogether, my credit score would get updated and it would reject me for future uh, credit. And so uh, I had to apply for them all in the exact same night. I didn't sweat a, like even a, a a drop. I just like was on the computer as if it was life or death. And oh uh, more or did less you do just, the full hundred thousand then in terms of the credit cards? I got over enough a, to it. Yeah, I got a hundred thousand dollars in credit. Like, <laughs> and it all just I just got the emails within the course of a week or two weeks or whatever it was, and you know, in the mail, just confirming, yeah, you've got twenty five thousand dollars on this card. Yeah. Here's fifteen thousand on this card. Um, and uh, all of them were zero percent APR. Oh, love it! So I was able to open up the. I was op- able to open up a retail space, and uh, I paid off every one of those credit cards within the first, I think, three you. or four months. And kept the equity yourself. God bless you. Oh, yeah, fantastic, exactly. fantastic, great. And since the surgery, have you been on you know additional medication? Has that helped you, you know, deal with it, or is is it really been you know now more in remission since that time? Yeah, so you know they they did a biopsy. They had uh, contradictory results in the beginning. They mm. thought that uh, you know it was um, you know malignant. Wait, was it? What is it? Yeah, malignant. malignant. And mm-hmm. yeah, and um, thank God they sent it out to uh, I don't know where it is. Um, Another uh, lab. Yeah, it's a famous lab. It's like on the East Coast, Minnesota or something like that. Yeah, Mayo Clinic or something. Yeah, Mayo yeah, Clinic. Got it. So mm-hmm. they, they sent it over to Mayo Clinic. I think at this point it was for a third uh, for a third opinion because it was in the Kaiser system. Then it went over to UCLA and then they sent part of my fucking brain out to <laughs> Mayo Clinic. <laughs> and, All over uh, the country to try and diagnose yeah, this thing. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but it ends up coming back that uh, this uh, very, uh, very narrowly defined strain of a benign uh, mass that was yeah. in my brain. Um, and of course, it has the ability to come back, um, but uh, it's not cancerous. And uh, that means that I, uh, I probably get to live over the, over the age of 30. Yeah. Fantastic! Wow. I haven't had a seizure since. Uh, oh. You know, my my right the right side of my body is completely recouped from the surgery. Merely weeks after, wow! I was able to raise some money and risk going bankrupt uh, with some credit cards. And um, yeah, fantastic! Well, what trying a to story. build a company. There you go. And profitable today, or are you still uh, relying on on investment from the outside? Uh, we, it, I mean, if we're asking a cash flow question, yeah, it, it, depends on, yeah. <laughs> it depends on, it depends on which, uh, which month which we're investing in what right? exactly. Yeah, no, we are, uh, we're pushing pretty hard. Uh, yeah. We're excited about the deals that we're making, but, uh, if we were to sit back and, uh, stop moving forward on things that, yeah, we, we'd be cash flow pause. Aaron Cadell, once again, thank you. You've been very generous with your time and, uh, thank you about telling us how you reached your corner office. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Brent. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. 
For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the Mighty Middle Market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.